Good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. Happy New Year again. I think I said that last week, but it's worth repeating. My name is Darren, and we're glad to have you all with us. We're in the middle of a study in 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you're a guest with us today, if you've come with friends or you're in from out of town or, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. Maybe you're from the neighborhood and you're looking for a new place to worship. We're really excited that you're with us. And even though we're in the middle of a study in 1 Corinthians, you're catching us a great time. I want to let you know, uh, we were we, one of the things we use around here pretty regular or have for the last few years are... Uh, these, these first Corinthians journals, Bible journals uh, that have the book of the Bible. And then on the facing page, they have a space to write notes or questions, things that God may be saying to you in the midst of your study. Uh, we were out of those. They were out of print for a while, but they've reprinted and they shipped us some. So if you're here today, whether you're a regular around here or if you're new, uh, you can grab one of those in, in the lobby on your way out because we've, we've uh, been able to restock. So those are available and we'd love for you to have one. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19, I also want to say uh, it's fun to be able to teach this this morning because 1 Corinthians 9.19 is my favorite verse in the Bible. So I know I'm probably not supposed to have favorites, like that kind of favoritism is weird, thank you. Uh, but it is my favorite, it's been my favorite for a long time, and I think you'll understand why uh, as we sort of dig into it a little bit. In 1 Corinthians uh, 8, remember, Paul was making the case, if you were here for the study, Paul was making the case that we don't want to be people who put a hindrance in the way of the gospel for other people. We don't want to create stumbling blocks, right? So he uses the illustration of meat sacrifice to idols, and he says, you don't, you don't want to be working at counter purposes. If there's a people who don't know Jesus the way you know Jesus, you want them to know Jesus. You don't want to do anything that's going to get in the way of that. As we move into 1 Corinthians chapter 9, at the beginning, he establishes his freedom. He establishes... Uh, some of the, the rights and the things he's entitled to. But as we went on last week in our study, he then sort of flips it and says, even though I'm free and even though I, I'm entitled to these things, I don't claim them. I don't take these things because again, I'm compelled to share the gospel and, and I don't want anybody to be confused about why I'm doing it. I'm not doing it for a paycheck. I'm not doing it to satisfy myself. I'm doing it because I'm under compulsion. I'm a man who's compelled to communicate the gospel. Now, as we move into the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, what he essentially gives us is like a concise summary statement of his evangelistic strategy. So what we see in these verses is a concise summary of the Apostle Paul's evangelistic strategy. Now, I want to say really quickly as we begin that when I start to talk about evangelism or when I talk about evangelistic strategy, uh, there are probably two different categories or camps of people in the room. For some of you, you love evangelism. You've always loved evangelism. You love sharing your faith with other people. Maybe you're really good at it, or maybe you've practiced. Maybe you've learned tools to be able to communicate the truth of Jesus to others. And so when you hear the word evangelism, uh, maybe you have a, a real sort of favorable feeling about that. There's another camp in the room, guaranteed. There are some of you that when I talk about evangelism, you start to feel kind of weird. And maybe, maybe even a little bit angry. I want to acknowledge this. For many, when we start to talk about evangelism, what that is associated with is coercion or manipulation, right? Or empiricism, the idea of someone sort of top down forcing something upon somebody else or sort of tricking them into a thing. If maybe you've had people, you know, shove gospel tracts into your hands or knock on your door during dinner time or whatever. And maybe you actually have a very unfavorable and sort of unsavory taste in your mouth when it comes to evangelism because it feels manipulative. I remember being at a Christian rock concert in the 90s at one point, and uh, about halfway through the, the main band set, 
there was a guy who came out from backstage in like a super scary like devil mask, you know, like glowing red eyes and the fangs and the horns and the whole thing. And he kind of roamed around in the crowd and he's talking to all the kids that were at the concert about how they were going to go to hell and he was going to drag them off and they were all wicked and they were all sinners and they were all deserving to burn and all this stuff. And then at the end, the singer from the band was like, now how many of you want to put your faith in Jesus? And there was like 200 kids who were like, whatever we got to do to get away from the guy in the mask, right? Like, yes, we'll sign up for whatever you want us to sign up for. That might be the flavor that you think of when you think of evangelism, where it doesn't necessarily feel so much like a a loving and generous communication of the truth of who Jesus is, but rather maybe it feels like a little bit of a bait and switch. Here's what I want to say to you if you're in that camp. The reason you feel that way is that the church has been guilty of coercion and manipulation and empiricism over the years. Not, Not all the time, but there are certainly cases of that. And the good news for you, whether you're in the first camp or the second, is that as we hear the Apostle Paul's evangelistic strategy, it has nothing to do, absolutely zero to do, with coercion, manipulation, or empiricism, right? In fact, his approach is not a top-down approach at all. It's not him saying, I've got something and you need to have it. It's him saying, let me serve you so you can understand who my Lord is, right? His approach is a, is a bottom-up approach. So what we see here in the first verse sort of summarizes it well, I think. 1 Corinthians uh, 9.19 says this. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Let's just look at that sentence for a second. When Paul talks about his own freedom, Paul is basically as free as a person can be in the culture in which he's writing this. He's a Jewish man. He's an educated man. He's a man who was well-respected at one point in his career. He's a guy that's looked up to. Not only that, he's a Roman citizen. And so he has liberty. He has freedom politically. He has freedom racially. He has freedom socially. He's a guy uh, that that is... uh, He's he's entitled to a lot. And in fact, we see his resume listed in Philippians. He doesn't do that here, but he begins by saying, I'm free. I like that assertion. As Americans, freedom is something that's important to us. There are people who have died for us that we could have liberty, right? We, We value and place a high value on freedom. Paul says, I'm free. There's no question about that. I'm a free person. And yet he goes on to say, and here's why it's significant to us, all of us in the room are free. Free in Christ, some of you, right? Free as Americans. We don't, nobody owns us. Nobody gets to, we're nobody's property, right? So we have that same freedom. But he says, though I'm free and I don't belong to anyone, I make myself a servant. Or I, I memorized this first in the NIV. In the NIV, he actually says, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now, let me just talk about the word slave for a second. I hope that when you hear someone say the word slave out loud, or when you see it in the pages of scripture, that you start to get fidgety, that you feel uncomfortable. We should, it is appropriate for us to feel uncomfortable when the word slavery comes up, because we have a horrific history in this country of enslaving people against their will, of treating people like property when they are actually made and created in the image of God and in the dignity of God, right? So when we hear the word slavery, we cringe, because we know the stories of people being taken from their homes and forcibly enslaved, right? But what Paul is talking about here is not forcible enslavement. It's not making someone else property. What Paul is actually talking about is choosing sacrifice, choosing enslavement, choosing service. Takes on a completely different property when it's not forced upon someone, when people aren't taken against their will and treated like objects, 
Paul is saying, I'm free, nobody owns me, and I am choosing, it is my choice, and I am willfully choosing service or sacrifice. I am choosing to lay down my rights, I'm choosing to lay down my privileges, I'm choosing to lay down my freedoms, even though I don't have to, I'm choosing to do that for a purpose. And he says, the purpose is, I choose to be a slave, I choose to be a servant, that I might win more of my fellow man, that I might reach more of my fellow man. And there's an interesting juxtaposition there. The word win could also be the word gain. And I think what he's doing here, in the passage we studied last week, he said, look, I'm entitled to take a paycheck. As an apostle of Christ, I'm entitled to be paid for that, but I choose to set aside that payment, right? I do what I do for free because I'm obligated to do it, because I'm compelled to do it. I think the juxtaposition he's making here is, it's not that I'm not interested in any kind of gain, but the kind of gain I'm interested in is not financial gain. The kind of gain or the kind of wins I'm interested in are wins in people understanding and believing in Christ. So though I'm free and belong to no man, I choose enslavement, I choose service, I choose sacrifice as a way to gain, even though I don't care about money, right? Now it's interesting because we know that Slavery to Christ or service to Christ necessitates servanthood to all or enslavement to all. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10, 42, listen to this. Jesus called to them and he said to them, you know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a servant of Christ, being a servant of Christ necessarily calls you to be a servant of your fellow men and women. Those are part and parcel of the same thing. Uh, We see in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with us as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What Paul is saying is that when you and I, though we are free, when we choose to serve others, when we choose to lay down our privileges and our rights and our entitlements, that what we actually end up doing is putting Jesus on display. That the incarnation of Christ is put on display in us. The servant nature of Christ is put on display in us. We emulate our king when we choose to serve other people. Slavery to Christ necessitates slavery to all. Paul here is not trying to lead from a secure position above. He's not saying, hey, I've got something and you need it. What he's articulating is his humble position below. And this points to the folly of the cross, right? So we talk about the cross. We talk about what Jesus does. Jesus, who is in very nature God, does not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to. Is he free? You bet he created all things. All things are sustained by him. We're created by him, are upheld by him. They all exist for him and through him, right? And yet Philippians tells us, we looked at this last week, that he didn't feel like he needed to hold on to those things. He laid those things down and he became nothing. He came to the earth. Well, what is that? Though he is free, he chooses to serve, to die in our place, that he might rescue us from sin and death. When in our freedom we choose to serve other people, we put Jesus on display, right? But that that bottom-up approach to leadership is foreign to most of us because we work hard to gain power or we work hard to gain authority. We like to let other people know our rights and our privileges and what we're entitled to. Laying those down in some ways is very un-American. And yet it's very Christ-like. 
So he says in 1 Corinthians 9.19, Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now he goes on, and he's going to give us three categories of people, and he's going to explain this evangelistic strategy to us. So here's what he says in uh, 20 and following. He says, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Again, you see that word win or gain is repeated multiple times here. Three categories. The first category is a, uh, it's an ethnic category or racial category. He says, to the Jews, I become as a Jew in order to win more of them. That's an interesting thing for him to say because he is by birth a Jewish man, right? So what does it mean that he becomes as a Jew? Well, if you have one of our journals this morning, if you're taking notes and you're a note-taking kind of person, I'd encourage you to take your pen or your pencil and underline the word as in verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew. He says something very similar further down when he's talking about those who were under the law. To those under the law I become as one under the law. You might underline that as one there as well. And then you go to 21. To those outside the law I became as one. He says that three times. I become in the likeness of them. Well, what, what's he talking about? For a Jewish man, he, he doesn't have to become as one. He, he is one. So what's the principle here? Three categories of people. He talks about those who are ethnically Jewish, who were born Jewish. He talks about Gentile converts to Judaism. So that's who he's talking about when he talks about those who aren't Jews, but are under the law. Those are people who've converted to Judaism and they uphold the Old Testament law, the Torah, right? They uphold the Old Testament law. He's talking about, that's the second category, Gentile converts. And then he gives a third category, and the third category is relatively comprehensive. It's everybody else to those who are not under the law. So neither Jews or those who have converted to Judaism, but everybody else, those who are not under the Old Testament law. Well, that includes believers in every other kind of faith. It includes those who uh, have no faith. It includes agnostics and atheists and whatever. He's talking about pagans there, people who, who don't know where they stand. He says, and to the Jewish people, I become as one of them. To those who are under the law, I become as one of them. And to those who are outside the law, I become as one of them. In order to win or to gain more of them for the sake of the gospel. So what does this mean? If, if, he, doesn't, if he doesn't become that, what does it mean that he is? Well, the idea is of understanding the differences in those three different categories of people. I think that what Paul is saying here is he says, I become a slave to other people is in recognizing that while he has his own rights and he has his own opinions and he has his own theological positions and he has his own beliefs, right? That he's going to pay attention to the questions and the concerns, the fears, maybe the objections of people in these other categories in order to be able to communicate how the gospel makes sense in each of those different cultures, in each of those different settings, in each of those different scenarios. Every setting that he walks into is slightly different. He could be in a setting with Jewish people. We see an example of what he's talking about in Acts 21. We won't turn there. But in Acts 21, although Paul himself is no longer under the Old Testament law, he agrees to go through ritual cleansing with a couple of other people who were making a Nazarite vow. Well, does he believe in that ritual cleansing? Does that have anything to do with his salvation under Christ? No. But he does it because James and the Jerusalem Council in Acts 21, you can look this up later, they ask him to do it. And so he goes along with a ritual that isn't even a part of his central faith. But he does so as a way to show them the way that Jesus breaks in. 
We hear in the book of Acts also about Paul uh, taking, taking beatings for being a heretic as a Jew. He was not obligated to take those beatings as a Roman citizen. Why does he take the beatings? He takes the beatings in solidarity with people who, who had questions about what was happening with his faith as he was a follower of Jesus. So what he says here is, uh, to those who were Jews, I become as a Jew. To those who were under the law, I become as one under the law. To those who were outside the law or not under the law, I become as one outside the law in order to win more of them. The concept here, and listen to this, the concept that he's describing is a willingness on his part to converse, to learn, to listen, to understand the pressures and the fears and the questions and the objections of people who think differently than him who see the world differently than them, than him, who, who believe maybe differently than him. What he's doing is he's engaging with other people to gain understanding so that he can contextualize the truth of Christ in any setting. Right? But I want to be clear here, we're not talking about compromise. This isn't Paul making a compromise in different settings. What he says to us clearly in these passages too is that he's, he's not under the Old Testament law, but he is under the law of Christ. He's submitted to the law. The law of Christ, as we see it declared in Galatians 6.2, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He sees himself as a man under the law of Christ, the law to love God and love others, right? We've talked about that before. He's not a man who's just free to do whatever he wants to do, but he's also a man who's not compromising in the essentials. He remains, even in the midst of this, under the law of Christ. He empathizes and serves differently in different settings based on the people who he's trying to serve. He said at the beginning, though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a servant. Part of that servant entails understanding what those people need and what their doubts and fears and questions and concerns are. I I will tell you that I don't know that we always do a good job of this in 2023. I think in 2023, we don't always have listening ears for other people's opinions. We don't always have a willingness to engage and to hear someone else's perspective, to try and put ourselves in other people's shoes, to listen to their fears, to understand their concerns, to put up with their objections. Most of the time what happens, at least as I see it, is we find other people who think exactly like us, who look at the world the very same way we do, and we increasingly sort of isolate ourselves in these little enclaves, and we increasingly sort of demonize the people who think differently, right? We look to the outside and go, anybody who doesn't vote like me or doesn't spend their money like me or doesn't dress like me or look like me or speak my language or come from my country has it wrong. Rather than leaning in and saying, you know, what can I learn about people, my fellow men and women who are also broken just like me? And how will that learning and that engagement and that investment and that understanding enable me then to serve them in a way that allows me then to bring the law of Christ and bearing the burdens of others And loving God and loving others to bring that to bear in the life of people who see the world differently than I do. What Paul is saying here is, I'm going to serve everybody and that means I'm going to have to work hard to know where they're coming from. To know how they want to be served and what that looks like. I was on a... uh, I was on a plane, just to give you a picture of this, I was on a plane, when I was working for Arbor Road Church in Long Beach, I was on a plane, I was on some pastoral, I was on a pastoral trip and I was traveling and I ended up on a, uh, on a plane next to a guy and I could tell he was having like a bad week or a bad month or whatever. And I'm, for the record, I'm not a guy who like makes people on planes talk to me. I'm perfectly comfortable in headphones or whatever, but I could tell this guy was upset, right? So I'm sitting next to him in the plane and I, and I just kind of said, hey, I don't want to bug you, but like, are you okay? And he's like, oh man, I've had, I've had the worst time. And he began to talk to me about things that were happening in his family Things were happening in his workplace. 
some heavy, heavy stuff that he was dealing with. And we get into this conversation where now just two human beings, right? Two human beings, both of us with pressures, both of us with brokenness, both of us trying to navigate the world, two human beings having a conversation even though we never met before. And I'm listening to what's going on with him. I'm listening to his fears. We didn't agree on everything. We're not in the exact same spot, right? But I'm listening. Why? Because this is my fellow human being created in the image of God with dignity, right? I want to know him and I want him to understand that Jesus can be brought to bear. The grace of God can be brought to bear on whatever it is he's facing because I've experienced that in my own life, right? So I'm having this conversation with a guy on the plane and he's talking about the, how hard things have been. And then the stewardess comes by and uh, she goes, hey, do you guys want anything? And I looked at him and I said, hey, can I get you something? And he goes, yeah, man, I'd love to have a beer. Well, the problem was that I was on this trip and I, I didn't have my own money. I only had the church credit card, right? So I have this moment, I, and you guys, you're laughing, so you understand my dilemma. I have this moment where I think, if I use the church credit card, i got to turn all those receipts in. Like, I'm accountable for all these expenses, and now i got a guy that I'm, I'm trying to love, and I'm trying to serve, and, and I, I'm just trying to hear my fellow human. And, he, and I asked him if he wanted anything, and he wants a beer. And so I'm like, yeah, okay, great. So I buy the guy, buy the guy a beer on the church credit card. He actually, in the course of the conversation, ends up getting a second beer, which was, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, and he, here's the thing. Like, I had to go back later and talk to the church accountant and be like, okay, I'm turning in this receipt for two beers on a plane. They weren't my, you know, the bottom line is, I'm not a guy who likes beer. I don't know that you care that about me, but I'm not a beer guy, right? It's not my jam. But here I am with someone who likes beer, who's hurting, just like I've been hurting in the past, and I want to have the opportunity to communicate Christ to him. And in that moment, had I stopped and said, well, the only thing I have is a church credit card, and I can't buy beer on that because some Christians don't like this or that. Like, that, that would have ruined my opportunity to engage. What am I doing? I'm paying attention to him. I'm paying attention to the person in front of me, and I'm laying down my own fears. I'm laying down my own rights and privileges, my own opinion about drinking on planes or whatever, and I'm trying to serve my brother. Does this make sense? Now, this, I'm not advocating that you go out and just start buying beer for people on planes. But I will say that you guys, if the church, and I mean, I mean specifically Fullerton Free, us, this family, but even the church more broadly, if we can't learn to listen and understand the fears and the concerns and the doubts and the objections of our fellow men and women, we will never be able to communicate Christ to them. And in fact, in rejecting that listening posture, we, we actually like obscure the image of Christ or distort the image of Christ who came. This is what Jesus is all like. Listen to just a few of these because this is what Jesus does. Let me just read you some in rapid succession. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I could go on and on, right? There's just like five or six in rapid succession. What is it that Jesus does in the incarnation? As it says in Philippians 2, he does not cling to his rights and his status and what he's entitled to, but he sets those things aside and he makes himself nothing. Why does he do that? He does that for the glory of God and for the good of those of us who are lost. Paul is saying, I'm free. Nobody has any claim on me. I choose to serve my fellow man. When I meet people who are Jewish ethnically, I know how to engage with them. I, I am imagining not, in, not just the ritual cleansing, but Paul probably didn't have any problems going to a Seder dinner or doing other things that may not have had the same significance to him that they had when he was following the, the Old Testament law. But he went because he wanted to show love to other broken people, right? I, I want to be clear that as we understand this, there is a, another thing he says. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He gives us three categories of people, right? He gives us the, the Jewish people. He gives us those who've converted to Judaism. And he gives those, uh, everybody else who's outside of that. And then he says a fourth thing. This is in verse 22. And I want you to see the distinction here. He says, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. It's different than the other three. In the first three examples, he says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those uh, not under the law, I became as one not under the law. Now, he doesn't say, to the weak, I become as weak, or I become as one who is weak, what he says is to the weak, I become weak. And, and that distinction is not just there in the English translation. That distinction is there in the original language as well. That as one is left out. So here we're not talking about him learning and listening and making uh, uh, the, the, uh, the effort to engage with somebody who comes from a different perspective. Now what we're talking about is his simple acknowledgement that the universal condition of all human beings is weakness. That all of us are weak. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to learn how to accommodate weakness in his fellow man. He doesn't have to figure out what it feels like to be weak. He doesn't have to do any of that. What he's saying is, with the weak, I'm weak too. And that might not seem like it needs to be said, except many times when we become followers of Christ, we start to glory in our redemption. We start to glory in the power of the Holy Spirit. We glory in our salvation and the future and the eternity that await us. And we forget what it's like to be broken, and yet we are still weak, right? In fact, Paul will say, sort of famously, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul doesn't say, I become as one who is weak. He says, with the weak, I'm weak. <laughs> right? And all he's saying is, I'm leaning into the reality of who I am and who every human being I've ever met is. And in that moment, we find a humble solidarity and brokenness. That creates a platform from which we can share the revolutionary kindness of Christ. Because everybody needs it, Right? I want you to understand that what Paul is talking about here is not putting on a facade. Maybe when you hear him say, to the Jews I became as a Jew, to the people under the law I became as one of the law, and you're like, man, if you're everything to everybody, then you're actually nothing to nobody. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's wearing all, it seems like he's wearing all these different masks. So who's the real Paul? I want to clarify that for you because that's not at all what he's saying. 
He's not saying that he's duplicitous. He's not saying that he's hypocritical. He's not saying that he puts on a charade for different people in different settings. You see, in each one of those settings, whether he's with the Jewish people or whether he's with those under the law or outside of the law, with each one of those settings, there is something that is consistent about him in every setting. Right? doesn't matter if he's at a Seder dinner or in a ritual cleansing for Nazarite vows or if he's being beaten with lashes as a heretic. In every one of those settings, there is something that is the same about him and it's the centrality of the gospel in his life. That's the thing that's the same. The gospel is center. What's the gospel? Well, the truth that Jesus, who was in the very nature of God, came to the earth, died in our place, shed his blood, rose from the grave, and extends to us by his grace resurrection life. That central truth... That man can be rescued from death and sin. That central truth that the relationship between God can be restored is never compromised. We're not talking about a man who's making compromises in order to fit into different cultural situations. We're talking about a man who understands the needs and the concerns and the values of people in a variety of different places so that he can bring the centrality of the gospel into every setting. That's what we're talking about. It's very, very, very Jesus-like. What he says here, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, is this. Look at verse 22. He says, To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I like the word that he uses there, save. It's different than win. The idea there is the intentionality of seeing people rescued from death. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. There's the centrality of the gospel message. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. He says, I know that Jesus rescued me from my brokenness, from my weaknesses. I know that Jesus rescued me from all of my fears and my doubts and my objections. And I want everybody else, men and women from every culture and every sphere, every language, every skin color, every, uh, you know, economic category. I want them all to know the same blessing I know. He talks here about partnership with the gospel partnership with the gospel. Now remember in an earlier passage, he talked about uh, a hindrance to the gospel, right? When you, when you have stumbling blocks for people, you're actually hindering the gospel. Now he's talking about the opposite. It's the very opposite of being a hindrance to the gospel to make yourself a slave, to make yourself a servant of others. And what do you become then? Well, you become a partner in the gospel. It's one or the other, not only not to hinder other people, but actually to become a partner in the message of the gospel because people can look at us and see Jesus on display, see the sacrificial heart of Jesus on display when we lay down our rights, when we lay down our entitlements and our privileges. But Paul knows this isn't going to be easy, right? And you should know that as well. I mean, there might be a temptation for you in the room today to be like, okay, I'm free. This is America. I'll just lay down my rights and I'm going to serve other people. Okay, I get it. Let's go. First Corinthians 919. Let's do it. Well, it's, it's obviously not as easy as that. Because we're not just talking about serving other people once. I'm not just saying, hey, serve somebody at lunch today and then you've checked the box. What Paul's talking about is a life of service and sacrifice. So here's what he says at the end. He gives us an illustration of athletic competition to kind of put this picture in our minds. He says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What he's saying to us is that there is an ongoing nature that requires a couple of things in order to live a life of service and sacrifice. 
He uses the illustration of a runner and then also of a boxer to emphasize a couple of key things. He says, uh, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? I, I want to be clear that, that one of the things he's emphasizing for us, and he does, or the, the writer of the Hebrews does in Hebrews 12, emphasize something very similar, that what will be required on our part to live a life of service and sacrifice, particularly in a culture like ours, is endurance. You got to be ready for the marathon, not the sprint, right? It's not about just being a servant at lunch today or just being a servant until the sun goes down. We're talking about getting up tomorrow and laying down your rights and your privileges and your entitlement for the sake of other people and doing that the next day and the next day and the next day. It takes discipline and training. There is endurance required. It's ongoing. Just Just so you see what is said in Hebrews 12, the writer to the Hebrews there says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight And sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. You know, the reality is that choosing the life of a slave or choosing the life of a servant means you're going to get stepped on. It means you're going to be forgotten about. It means you'll be insulted. It means you'll be set aside. It means your opinions will be disregarded because you've set aside your entitlement and your rights. He says, when when you start to feel like, I don't know if I can do this, when there's a threat to lose your endurance, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. So he's calling us to endurance. It's worth noting too, back to 1 Corinthians 9, that the prize, he says, we we run to win the prize. Well, the prize for what it's worth is not the favor of God. So I want to be really clear about this. He's not talking about the favor of God because we don't earn the favor of God. We don't earn the love of God. We don't earn salvation, right? We believe that salvation is given to us by grace. It's the gift of God, it says in Ephesians, not of works, lest anyone should brag or boast. He's not saying I work hard and I train myself and I have a a focus because I want God to love me or because I want to go to heaven. That's, That's not what he's talking about at all. The prize here in Paul is what? Partnership with the gospel for the sake of winning those like himself who are weak and broken and just don't know Jesus yet. That's the imperishable wreath, right? The imperishable wreath is not God's favor or affection. It's partnership in the gospel. And he says it's going to take endurance, not only does he say it's going to take endurance, but he says, there, or he says it's going to take intention, right? Look down at it again. He says, uh, verse 26, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I think you need, you and I all need to think about intentionality. Like, what is it you're aiming at? What's the goal? When you're running in a race, you know there's a finish line ahead. I think for many of us in the Christian life, sometimes we just do things without ever thinking about why we're doing them. We don't ever ask the question like, why is this important to me? Or why am I spending the time? Maybe even as you turn the corner into 2023, you set some uh, New Year's resolutions or whatever. And they might be really good spiritual things. But maybe you didn't ever stop to ask yourself why you're doing them, right? And there might be good answers. But we don't want to box the air aimlessly. We're not training just willy-nilly. We're training for the sake of partnering in the gospel that we might win more of those of our fellow brothers and sisters who don't know Jesus. So look at your life. Look at your time. Look at your choices. Look at your priorities. Look at your values and ask yourself, why do I care about this? Why is this important? And if there isn't a gospel centricity to it, then maybe you shouldn't do it. Maybe there's a better way to use your time. Not only does he call us to endurance, not only does he call us to intentionality, but there is a sense in this sort of race analogy 
that it isn't an amble. That was some, something that somebody said in our teaching team meeting this week uh, or, in, or in the kitchen meeting on Tuesday. Somebody said, you know, a race by its very nature, is, you're not like stroll. It's not a stroll. It's not an amble. We're not just sort of limping along. No, the idea of a race is that there's energy, there's activity. And I also think that sometimes as Christians, we go, yeah, you know, if I think of it, I'll try to serve somebody, you know? If I think of it, I'll set my rights aside. You know, I'll do my best, but I'm just, I'm just happy I'm going to heaven. Well, what he says is that there should be in the life of an ambassador of Christ a sense of action, a sense of energy, right? A sense of movement that calls us not just to sort of be a servant when we can, but to be looking for opportunities to lay down our lives. So there's intention, uh, there's, there's activity, there's endurance. And then he says to want the same thing two different ways. He talks about self-control and he talks about discipline. I think that's kind of a no-brainer when it comes to uh, training and endurance. There has to be this self-control and discipline involved. But the thing I, I was thinking about as we were talking about this week is that what, that what that does for us too is it also creates an opportunity for encouragement, right? So here's, here's what I'm suggesting. In the times of my life when I've been on a diet and I've been on them a lot and I've been off of them a lot and I've been on exercise bikes for a while and then off exercise bikes and I've you know, we've, we've detailed this in great, uh, in great detail over time. But in those times when I'm trying to exercise self-control and discipline, you want to know what the, one of the greatest things in, in those days is for me? When somebody comes along and says, I can see what you're doing. I can see what you're doing. I, I can see that you're making good choices. I can see that you're exercising. Whatever. Like that little bit of encouragement, it bolsters the self-discipline, right? It bolsters the self-control to know that I'm not in it by myself. So one of the things I wanted to advocate for is Paul's not saying I'm in a race and you all should also just observe what I'm doing. He's saying we're in this race together and we're not competing. We're running in a race for an imperishable wreath, which is partnership with the gospel and because we're in that race together, I think there's a great opportunity for us to be looking into the lives of one another and saying, man, I watch the way you are with your kids. And I just got to say, that looks like Jesus to me. Oh, I heard that story. You told me the way you were interacting with your neighbor who wouldn't trim his hedges. And I got to tell you, that looks like Jesus to me. What if we could become the kind of community that would spot sacrifice, that would spot intentional service, people who are putting on Christ by laying down their own rights and entitlement, and then we could say to them, I see Jesus in you as a way to bolster the self-control and the discipline that is necessary. I long for us to be that kind of community. Paul says it's not going to be easy. It takes endurance and intentionality, activity, and, and, and encouragement, I think, here, because it's a, a thing we're all doing. His evangelistic strategy is about care, solidarity, service, and clarity about Christ. I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it just in closing. What he's advocating for is a pathway into the life of every person you know, right? I, I, uh, I said it earlier, but all of us are broken. But when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing the truth of who Jesus is, the one thing that everybody you know, it doesn't matter what they look like, it doesn't matter where they come from, it doesn't matter what their political ideals, it doesn't matter their theology. The one thing that every human being you know has in common with you is that all of us like it when somebody else does the dishes. And that might seem like an oversimplification, but you guys, let me tell you what. Everybody on the planet likes it when they come outside to move their trash cans back into the backyard and somebody has already done that, right? Somebody else mows the grass. And those are very simple illustrations of a much, 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 much larger point. But are you looking for a way to engage your family? Are you looking for a way to communicate Jesus to people you've never met, people at your workplace or people in your school, people that you're on a softball team with or whatever? You want to know how to share Jesus with them? 
put Jesus on display by serving them. There isn't a person on the planet who doesn't like to be served. It is a pathway into every human life. And the reality for us, I don't want you to miss this in closing. I will either cling to my rights and my privileges and my entitlement and therefore sacrifice and mar the image of Christ or I will cling to the gospel in the image of Christ and sacrifice my rights and my entitlement. Let me say that again. I will either cling to my rights and my opinions, my privilege, my entitlement and sacrifice the image of Jesus because I will distort what he looks like to other people or I will cling to the image of Christ. I will cling to that gospel centricity. And in so doing, I will by necessity have to sacrifice my rights and my entitlements in service of the other. He says at the very end of this chapter, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Interestingly, uh, that disqualification he's talking about, if you look at the original word, he's not talking about being disqualified by God. He's not saying, hey, if I don't discipline myself, God's going to throw me out. No, that disqualification also has the implication of counterfeit or something that doesn't pass real scrutiny. So what he's saying at the end of this chapter is, I make myself a servant to everyone so that after preaching, people don't look closer at me and go, yeah, he has lots of great things to say, but it's not real. That is the danger for all of us. And we can talk all the Christian talk we want to, but we hold on to our entitlements. We distort the image of Christ and our witness is disqualified, not by God, but by the people who are looking at us in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods and in our families. I don't want to be disqualified by people who are looking. And therefore, though I'm free, nobody owns me. I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible for the glory of God and the good of my fellow man. All of us, weak and in need of a savior. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this verse and the verses that follow it. I thank you for this strategy, this intentionality on Paul's part to lay down his resume and all of his opinions and instead to look for opportunities to incarnate your heart of sacrifice and service. Help me to be that kind of man. Help us to be that kind of church. Help the church in the world to be that kind of body that accurately puts you on display by laying down ourselves. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.